0: (音楽) ¶¶
1: Show, we're going to be talking about freedom of religion and the state. We've got interviews about circumcision ban in Cologne. We'll talk with foreskin man in San Francisco, Dan Seligman of Parti Pop here in Montreal. Plus find out about the first ever Jewish frosh in Montreal. So we've got a great show. Stay tuned. And to listen to this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave, you can download the podcast from iTunes or stream shows from shtetlmontreal.com. Welcome back to Shtetl on the Shortwave. We have a great show for you, this first show of September, and we're listening to Judici right now, a band out of Germany that sings in Yiddish. They're pretty awesome. And today we've got Dan Seligman of Pop Montreal on the show to talk about the recent Quebec elections and why he feels he didn't get a seat. And journalist Marley Wasser takes us with her to experience Montreal's first ever Jewish frosh. But first, with all the talk about Pauline Marois' secular charter in Quebec, Shtetl has freedom of religion on the mind. What happens when the state intervenes in your religious practices? This past summer, a court in Cologne, Germany, ruled that it was illegal to perform circumcision on male babies. And while this ruling was overturned by a higher court, there were lots of very strong reactions from the community. And we're going to hear from Martin Schubert, a young German Jew, about his perspective on this controversial debate in Germany. And we're also going to hear from intactivist Matthew Hess, he's the author of the MGM Bill or the Male Genital Mutilation Bill written in San Francisco and he also draws the comic Foreskin Man and Vulva Girl. So to start off, here's my interview with German Jew Martin Schubert, he's a happening guy on the Jewish media scene in Germany and a blogger for the band Judacy that we just heard and he had some interesting things to say about what the Jews around him felt when they were told that circumcision was a no-go. In your opinion is Jewish culture in Germany thriving?
2: That's a good question because it will lead us to uh, where we have to define what is Jewish culture. I think it's thriving in terms of Jews moving here, especially Israelis. We have a lot of people coming in, but right now if you, if you say thriving, especially the more religious crowd would say it's not thriving because of things like, for example, the circumcision verdict that we had. So I think the notion there goes from, on the scale from Germany and Berlin is the place for Jews in the world, to we cannot live here anymore because the Germans are becoming anti-Semitic again. I think on this range, you have all kinds of opinions.
1: Why would you say that, that Germany and Berlin is the place for for Jewish people to live in the world today?
2: From countries outside of uh, North America or Israel, I think Germany is quite unique as a place which is, I think, not hot, not hostile to Jews, has a different attitude towards Israel. And therefore, because of this rich history, is something which you cannot find in, in, in other places, because there has been this symbiosis between German culture and Jewish cultures for, for centuries. After the, the disaster of the Holocaust, of course, it was for a long time a taboo to come to Germany. You know, there were people who said that Germany is a wasted land for for Jews. Jews shouldn't go there anymore. So now that uh, people are opening up more because time is passing, I think um, there's a new excitement or maybe sometimes also a little bit the taste of the forbidden. I don't know. Hard to say.
1: You're involved in the revival of Jewish culture in Berlin and in Germany. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I'm doing the Mendelssohn X show, which is a show for Jewish holidays because I was bothered that when you put in Jews in Google that you get mostly anti-Semitic pages or something. So I wanted something that people have something positive on the media and infotainment levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there is uh, the Judici Lifestyle Blog, which is done by Maya Saban, who is a German pop singer who was quite successful and has uh, Israeli roots and wanted to start something like to uh, show Judaism not only an, as a thing of the past or as something uh, yeah, connected to, to the Holocaust, but to show a new life. So I think st- stuff like this probably could not have been here like 20 years ago or something that comes like now.
1: So I wanted to ask you about the question of circumcision. How did young Jews in Germany react to the verdict in the Cologne court, the decision to outlaw male circumcision?
2: Well, I mean, of course, the initial reaction was that people were, uh, how do you say, perplexed, because it's something that that you didn't expect, because circumcision is something very (laughs) natural for Jews. And so to learn that the federal state could think about outlawing it was uh, shocking for a lot of people. But on the other hand, you know, for, for most people, it didn't change that much, I mean, I think most people were shocked when they first heard about this verdict. Circumcision from the Jewish perspective is one of the essential columns, you know, of the of the faith or the culture. People didn't expect that so many Germans didn't know about the importance of circumcision within Judaism. On the on the other hand, when the reactions came from all over the place, like for example the, the chief rabbi of Israel, Jonah Metzger came here and another chief rabbi from from Israel said Jews should leave germany then people were also perplexed by this and thought that it doesn't it's not standing in relation to to what's happening on the ground which is a legal debate within germany
1: mhm okay so Jews the young jewish people that you are surrounded by or that you talk to were surprised that and felt like it was a decision that was made not understanding how central circumcision is to Jewish faith or to some Jewish people?
2: Well um, it might sound <laughs> naive but um, I think people like me who grew up like with this uh, <laughs> I would say traditional uh, approach to Jewish customs to face a world where suddenly circumcision is seen as something which is harming the baby and seen as, let's say, a criminal act against a small child, it's of course, I mean, I don't think too many people seriously thought about it. Am I traumatized or something? But um, it's something which just leaves you a a strange taste, you know, especially if you know all those stories from, let's say, uh, Jewish religious history. I mean, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? I mean, there was a thing that the the Greeks wanted to take, essential Jewish customs away from from us. I think this is a very hot point
1: mm-hmm.
2: for Jews in general.
1: The, the hot topic here is what happens when government, or when a court decides on, on religious practices for your community, and it feels threatening. Whether you agree with circumcision or not, it still feels threatening in some way.
2: If you know uh, about, about Jewish, Ju- Judaism, you know that things cannot be taken away. You know, an Orthodox Jew, has mitzvot, and they have to be kept, and you cannot take it away, you know, you cannot say, let's make circumcision at age of 14, because it's halakha. Right. So on, on the other hand, you know, it also says that Jews are religiously supposed to follow the regional laws of the countries they live in,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which would, if you take both of these serious, of course, lead to the, to the solution that religious Jews couldn't live here if the verdict stayed, you know?
1: Which is, I guess, why those rabbis were saying that the Jews should leave Germany?
2: Um, I guess so, because I think that they were not quite aware of the legal system here. You know, the the whole political class was behind us in this question. It's just that what happened was, what what initiated this, was that a small um, Muslim boy Mm -hmm. was brought by his mother to the hospital and he was bleeding very heavily. And uh, because it turned out that it was after a circumcision, the legal system, you know, from a modern liberal country had to go after this. Mm -hmm. And this led now to this whole mess. But everybody knows that Germany, with all its work for reconciliation, would never become the first country that would completely outlaw circumcision.
1: Did you feel like this issue that came up in some ways brought... Jewish and Muslim Germans closer together?
2: Um, yes, <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, development, actually, because, you know, usually you're used to that we're kind of on different sides, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, now you can see those political talk shows where, like, the, the, the Muslim and the Jews, they are together, you know, and embracing each other. Mm-hmm. I think this might be a positive development of the whole thing, although there are also um, steps backwards in, in this kind of field because last week there was an attack from some young Muslim youth against the rabbi so <laughs> this didn't make it much much easier but in general I think the circumcision debate made some progress in the Muslim Jewish relations
1: on the Judici blog there was a post right after the the decision happened of a woman wearing I think it was like a full a burqa
2: yeah that was a little joke yeah. what were you um, trying
1: to say with the <laughs> image? Of the because, a woman with um, a full face covering you know, and uh, head covering.
2: It's, it's always like a rhetorical uh, thing to turn meanings uh, around. So my idea with that post was that um, because, I mean, people are afraid here about of the burka, and it's always a discussion if burka should be allowed. So I just turned the burka into the foreskin <laughs> and r- wrote it in German from the perspective that usually... With, with which usually people who are Islamophobic in Germany write about Islam, wrote, wrote about how these developments come that people force us to wear a burqa on the penis. <laughs> so that was just a r- little rhetorical joke. But
1: What was the title of the blog post?
2: Um, no burqa for, yeah, <laughs> okay, no for my penis or occupy dick. Yeah.
1: Okay, no burqa for my penis or occupy dick. Got it. Um, Is there anything else that you want to say on the subject or anything that I missed that you think would be be good to add to this conversation?
2: Maybe just um, as a German Jew, I'm I'm very concerned, of course, also how foreign media covers this topic, you know. And so um, I think that people should keep in mind that it's always a big difference to see something from the outside or the inside. And when you see it from the outside and you see two things, Germany and outlawing a Jewish custom that it's it's of course an emotional reaction because you think about I don't know the 1930s and Hanukkah and and combine it you know Mm -hmm. and um, so I think that a lot of those reactions that came from other countries weren't that helpful because they thought immediately that here is starting uh, another the next uh, Nazi regime you know from the inside people know here that it's not a big thing, that it's a legal thing in Germany, and uh, it will not uh, remain. So, I mean, if some people got this now from this interview, I would be happy.
1: So that was Martin Schubert uh, talking about his take on what happened uh, this summer in Cologne in Germany and how people reacted to the verdict to ban circumcision. Um, And there were some terms in there that I think uh, some of the listeners might not have heard of. But like mitzvah, he said that for an Orthodox Jew, you can't choose whether to do a mitzvah or not. And that's a commandment. So for example, circumcision or wearing a kippah or you know, observing the laws of the Sabbath, those are commandments. And so it's a pretty interesting conflict because what he was saying, I think, is fascinating that a, an, an observant Jew has to follow the laws of the land, but at the same time also has to follow the laws of Torah. And so it can it can be an interesting conflict. Uh, so we're going to take a break and we're going to be back to listen to the clip with Matthew Hess, the author of Foreskin Man. And if you want to uh, check out the blog that uh, Martin Schuber writes uh, on the Judici website. You can go to judici.com. And for right now, this is a little bit of uh, music from the Judici band, um, their song Cabaret. <laughs>
3: Stettl auf Shortwave auf CKUT 19.3 FM in Montreal.
1: This next clip that we're going to hear is with uh, Matthew Hess. I spoke to him last week, and he's the author of the MGM bill. It's a bill to amend an already existing bill, the uh, female genital mutilation bill, and he's put it before the American government every single year, and he's going to be doing that again this year. And uh, He's an intactivist, and an intactivist is an activist who fights for the right for uh, baby boys to not be what they consider mutilated at birth through circumcision. And um, he's also the author of a comic called Foreskin Man and Vulva Girl, where these superheroes uh, swoop in and save uh, boys from being circumcised, whether it's... uh, in the African context or whether it's at a home uh, in in North America in a Jewish family. And it's uh, quite a controversial comic. So this is my conversation with Matthew Hess from San Francisco. Take a listen. What was the inspiration for you to draw foreskin Man and vulva Girl?
3: I've been a, a comic book fan my whole life, and, you know, I, I've been, as an activist, I've been trying to explain to people, you know, circumcision is a human rights violation, and, and some people get it, but a lot of people don't get it, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if you could have a comic book where the hero rescues boys from circumcision, and the villains are these doctors and royals and tribal circumcisers who are out there trying to hurt these children and steal their foreskins, so um, I started with the first issue. And, you know I, I realized this could go a long way. There's a lot of circumcises out there and there's a lot of different types of circumcision. so now we're up to three issues and, and there'll be more coming out. I think that helped a lot of people you know recognize that circumcision really is a crime or at least it's at least from the child's perspective it's a crime.
1: And why did you draw the moyle as a monster? All the different I guess in the three issues there's doctor. mutilator, there's right the moyle monster and uh-huh. they're the circumcisors in Africa. Right. And seeing as this is a show about Jewish arts and culture, I was particularly taken by Foreskin Man's encounter with the moyle and wondered why he was drawn the way he was.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, they're all all the circumcisors are drawn to be evil. I did that specifically to make a point, you know, that they're the bad guys here. The children are the innocents, and these circumcisers are taking something from them against their will. So on the first issue, I drew the doctor to be this sort of evil doctor who morphs into an even more evil circumcising doctor, Dr. Mutilator, and uh, he actually is a real monster when he does the circumcision. In issue number two, at Monster Mohel, I drew him also to be evil because, you know, from the child's perspective, you have this, uh, you know, he's just born into the world, And within the first week of life, you have this man coming at him in a black cape and hat with a knife in his hand, ready to cut off one of the most sensitive parts of his body. Why is he doing that? So, you know, from the child's perspective, clearly that's a monster, his worst nightmare coming at him. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the same thing in the third issue. You know, you have um, in Africa, young boys are taken and in many cases kidnapped and forced to undergo this tribal circumcision ceremony, and it's done to both boys and girls. Um, So, you know, they were drawn to be evil as well. Uh, Future issues are not going to draw circumcisers as normal happy people who are just out there to, you know, who maybe have shades of gray. I mean, in my mind, it's a black and white issue. I, I don't think there's any redeeming value to forced circumcision, and I think the characters should be drawn to reflect that.
1: How do you react to people who have felt like the portrayal of the moyle was particularly anti-Semitic, pulling on stereotypes of Jewish people over time, which have worked to vilify them, that potentially, not just the moyle, but also the African circumcisers, that these might be promoting stereotypes that could also promote hatred?
3: Well, the the comic is not meant to promote stereotypes or create hatred for vast groups of people. You know. In issue number one, we're not saying we're against doctors or medicine. We're against doctors who circumcise. In issue number three, we're not against all Africans or tribal cultures or their practices. We're against forced circumcision of children in an African context. Well, by the same vein, we're not anti-Semitic. We're not against Jewish traditions. However, uh, we're very opposed to moils and Jews who circumcise children in the name of religion. I mean, that is a crime in my mind. It doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's done in a medical setting or a tribal setting or a religious setting. You know, Amputating part of someone else's body by force is an assault. And I think that you know you can't sugarcoat that. You really need to show that for what it is if you're going to make people understand it.
1: So th- you have no sympathy for people who feel uncomfortable with the portrayal that you've made of some Jewish people in particular, showing them all as Orthodox Jews with black hats and coats and drooling. You have no sympathy to that.
3: You no, don't, you I don't, you don't I, get I have that sympathy criticism for the child who is being circumcised. You know, okay. if, if 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 people are saying that this is anti-Semitic, they need to step back and say, well, wait a minute, the boy is also Jewish here. Now, if someone were really anti-Semitic, they would just say, oh, well, I'm not even going to bother with Jewish circumcision. We don't care about Jewish boys. This is about other boys. That's anti-Semitic. I want to protect all boys, and that includes Jewish boys, Muslim boys, Gentile boys, atheist boys. All children deserve to be born with their genitals left intact. And this isn't targeted toward any one specific group. This is, I do this do,
1: is a water issue. I do understand what you're saying, and I understand the complexity of the issue. I guess what gets me is that it does really portray Jewish people in a way that they've been portrayed before, which has really been detrimental in and, and people who might already be anti-semitic or have hatred towards Jewish people this would just really reinforce it that's that's the main criticism in addition I'm, I'm just curious to understand why was foreskin man drawn as like the blonde white anglo-saxon man that he is well,
3: right um, well uh, you know I'm I my heritage is German I'm half German my last name is Heft, and Foreskin Man is a reflection of my own heritage. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of accusations out there that, oh, well, you know, Fourskin Man was deliberately drawn as a Nazi uh, or a Nazi-like character, and, you know, Monster Mohel was, you know, meant to be the evil Jewish moyle who's out there to, you know, suck the blood from baby boys, things like that. You know, that's one way of looking at it. But that's not, you know, that's not the motivation Horsesky Man was a reflection of my own heritage. I'm proud of my heritage. I don't see any reason to apologize for the fact that Horsesky Man has blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, You know, that's reverse discrimination. Not every blonde-haired person out there is a Nazi. Not every Jewish person out there is a circumciser. You know, we need to look at this for the issue itself. And people can read into the comic what they want to read into it, and they can see what they want to see. But if they look at the whole comic and the whole series— the common thread is that Foreskin Man is rescuing baby boys from circumcisors.
1: Why is this such a personally important issue?
3: Well, I was circumcised as an infant, against my will, in a medical setting, um, in a hospital. Like most boys were at that time in the United States, probably some 80% of boys were circumcised and it was considered fairly routine. I suffered the the loss of sensation just like every man who's been circumcised has. And when I was in my late 20s, it really became such a problem that I I tried to to find out if there was any way to correct the condition. And I learned that you could reverse some of the damage by doing what's called non-surgical foreskin restoration, which is just pulling what remaining you have forward so that you can recover the glands that's been exposed mm-hmm. it's kind of you know it's kind of like if you cut off an eyelid you can pull what skin over you you know what skin you have left over your eye and remoisten your eye so that you would you know restore some vision well you can also do that to restore some of the sensitivity that's lost because that dried out Guard skin now becomes moist and sensitive like it was designed to be. And um, that allows these layers of keratin and callus to peel away slowly so that within a couple of years, you've really got some feeling back. Now you can never restore the nerve endings that are cut away. Those are gone for good. So you'll never be a 100%. But you can get some of the sensation back. And once I did that, I knew that this was just a complete sham. I mean, I had always felt that circumcision was a human rights violation. But, you know, once I saw for myself exactly what had been done to me and I was able to get some of it back, I felt I really had to get involved because I knew there were millions of men out there just like me who were victims of this. And more importantly, there are still almost a million boys a year who are being subjected to this against their will, and they're going to have to go through the same thing.
1: So that was Matthew Hess, author of the MGM bill, the male genital mutilation bill and also author of Foreskin Man which if you want to check out you can see at ForeskinMan.com I would never want to belittle his personal experience and his point of view but I definitely think it's quite a statement to say that not all Germans are Nazis and not all Jews are circumcisors. I don't know if I would compare those two things. Um, anyways, we're going to take a break and we're going to be back in a couple of minutes with Dan Seligman of Pop Montreal but first this is Opa, they're from St. Petersburg and they were just here in Montreal for the Jewish Music Festival. Yes, this is a total Shtetl remix. Sweet. So we're back on Shtetl on the shortwave. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and we've got Dan Seligman in the studio. Dan's the founder and creative director of Pop Montreal, everybody's favorite music festival happening at the end of the month. And with the Quebec elections just happened this week, and there were posters all around town of this new party, Parti. Pop with Dan Saligman's face plastered all around the city, stating his campaign promise for an avenir le fun. And Dan's joined us here on Stuttle to talk politics and about the upcoming Pop Montreal festival. Welcome to Stuttle on the Short Wave, Dan.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: It's always a pleasure. Always. Always. Well, this is the second time, and God willing, it's going to be a tradition.
4: Really? Have I been on before?
1: Yeah. You remember when you were in uh, South by Southwest and you had that oh, poutine it was panel? A f-
4: phone interview right it's a phone interview That's first time in studio first time in Much studio different.
1: i wish i had a bell for that but i don't i gotta get my special effects happening so uh how's it going pretty good yeah busy yeah mm-hmm. with Getting what ready.
4: you know this and that hanging out having fun spreading spreading the gospel all
1: right yeah. so uh what would quebec look like if pop montreal were the governing party
4: uh, it would look a lot like Toronto. No. <laughs> Why? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I don't. It's the the idea of the campaign posters was was never really like to actually run you know t- t- as a campaign for pro- political purposes. Like it was more just kind of like a mock idea and just to have fun. And I think everyone was like kind of. Annoyed and pissed off and not really happy about any of the choices and so we just wanted to like spread a little kind of light on the whole the matter and I mean I don't know we're definitely not interested in politics personally um, but I think one thing that everyone can agree on is fun so and a lot of people were coming up to me on the street and saying oh my god I wish I could vote for you I saw the signs oh I, I mean I totally would vote for you if you were running So, oh
1: my god I did vote for you you weren't on the ballot <laughs>
4: No, I'm not (laughs) Amir Kadir.
1: Okay, well, were you upset that you weren't in the televised debates?
4: I actually had like this fake debate on Bon Depart, like on Radio Canada. You did? With like one of their, like they had like a fake party as well. And so it was like a two minute debate en français. It was kind of stressful, but...
1: How is your français?
4: C'est pas parfait, mais j'essaie.
1: Ça marche, ça marche. marche. Okay, because you're you're originally from Toronto, right? Oui. So what made you decide to to come and make Montreal your home?
4: I I came to McGill, and I loved it. I didn't really have, like, a grand plan. I actually really liked Toronto when I was growing up as a kid. Um, But I had come to Montreal a few times to visit people, and it was always a good time. And I moved, and I just loved the city and wanted to stay. And, you know, a lot of kids who go to McGill they end up like going back to Toronto or wherever for the summer but I made like a real real effort to live in the summer and get jobs and I never lived in residence I lived in the plateau from when I started and so I just kind of felt like it was a great city and when I graduated I just decided to like see what would happen and I started like I had a job but then my brother who was living in New York at the time his band Stars who were pretty successful now. They were just starting out and I kind of volunteered my time to start working with them and going on the road and they ended up moving here and that's kind of how I started in the music biz.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it started as like a family affair. It's a family affair. Got it. Mishpacha. Mm Mishpacha. And what does that mean? The Yiddish word of the day? Family. (laughs) (laughs) Mishpacha in the shtetl. Um, So was language ever an issue for you here in Montreal?
4: uh i mean i think it's something that it's like a process i mean i'm not 100 percent fully bilingual i wish i was i i've taken classes i make an effort to speak you know my i have a daughter now and she goes to a french daycare so she'll definitely speak better than me not right now but eventually she's only three (laughs) <laughs> it won't be long before she catches up <laughs> yeah.
1: um so how do you feel that the pq minority government what is that going to mean for arts and culture in montreal
4: i think it should be fine i mean the pq aren't like they're not the cac party they're not like you know total you know neoliberal i mean they i think culture is going to be a strong part of their platform because culture and language are so intricately tied. Um, and because it's a minority government, they're not going to just go all you know all out and get rid of every kind of non, you know, representation of culture. So I'm not, you know, super worried. I think everything. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you're dealing with the same bureaucrats in terms of the granting bodies. It's like the ministers change, but the people who work for them are all the same. So I don't think the mandates will. Change. I mean, knock on wood. Hopefully, everything you know continues, and there is support in organizations like SODEC and Conseil des Arts, and all these different things. You know, and we, you know, we're still part of Canada, so there's federal, federal agencies that support the arts as well. And I think there. And at the end of the day, I think there's a public that is interested in supporting music and culture as well.
1: And do you think people were overreacting and like freaking out about separation?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think. I th- I think it's kind of like used, it's like divis- division politics. It's like instead of actually talking about the real problems, it's it easy to like pick on these things that are super emotive and get people excited and angry or passionate. You know, it's really easy to be passionate about, you know, your own country. It's not that easy to be passionate about healthcare and education. So... I think, it, you know, they're used as political tools to drum up, like, support. And I think most people are smarter than that. And that's why you have such a divided, uh, you know, electorate. There's like 30, 30, 27 percent, 5 percent for Quebec Solidaire. So there really isn't, you know, I think people are kind of sick of all the options. And maybe that's why it's time for uh, the, the fun party to take over.
1: Parti Pop. parti Pop. Party, pop. party Come de on. la Fun. When's the next election? You guys got to get organized. Okay, I want to ask you about Pop Montreal because it's coming mm-hmm. up. Sure. What are like some of the big, exciting shows that are that people should not miss?
4: Um. Well, Peaches, of course. Peaches. I. I maybe I'll let slip out this little secret because we're gonna do something super special with her and Chili Gonzalez. on the. F- it's actually on the Friday night at, at Ukrainian Federation. It's a secret show that the two of them are putting together.
1: Wow. Um, secret. So
4: if if you do a little research on like their collaborations in the past you can find out what it will be it's a musical
1: this is a shtetl exclusive right yeah. now you're finding out about mm-hmm. a
4: big or no we can't announce it because the the like composer of the musical would sue us so it's one sort of, those. of under
1: wraps yeah it's, okay got it it's big it, okay okay that's <laughs> awesome okay peaches we love peaches on yeah, and
4: then she's doing like her her like dj extravaganza show on the thursday night at uh we call it eglise pop little burgundy it's the church on the corner of saint dominic and uh saint joseph in the basement okay cool so we're taking that over for the week and we're doing like late night shows they start at 11 till 3 every night and that should be pretty cool. Um, then there's fanfare for people who are, like, uh, fans of uh, like gypsy klezmer music. fanfare Ciocarlia from uh, Romania, like legends of, of uh, gypsy music. Big marching band, like and brass band.
1: Jeff Burner's opening, for Jeff
4: Burner's opening. Yeah. That's going to be and an Kenai. awesome show. There's like a so called kind of twist to the whole thing. Awesome. Even though he's not here this year, he produced the Jeff Burner album and the Kenai album, who are both opening, and then he's, he's collaborated with Funfare before he just. Did a song with them. Cool. So
1: very cool. Yeah. Okay. This is my last question. Pop Montreal is falls flat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Where is there a reason that you scheduled the festival at this specific high holiday time? Um,
4: because it's like the festival is all about an awe-inspiring experience, and so it falls within the days of awe, right? Isn't that the days of awe? The in-between stays. Nice. So, but that's not. I mean, we intentionally try to avoid three things uh, for pop uh, the high well rosh Hashanah, yom kippur and uh, thanksgiving so we intentionally schedule the festival at the end of september or beginning of october and so we just try to avoid those three major events but i mean i do the like it of kind Ar- of you know? being in awe
1: yeah yeah totally can so you party when you're in awe i i can you have fun when you're yeah, sure. I think so. I mean, I, I depends how. I it's... think it's
4: a cool concept because you should be kind of like open to things, you know, and reflective, and just yeah. I mean, the festival is all about being open and alive and you
1: know, experiencing new culture, new people, new venues, a new people, vibe, spaces, yeah, it's feelings, awesome. emotions. And there's even like a show in a mikvah, which is awesome, but we got to We got to end this conversation. <laughs> I can't go there, <laughs> but it's true. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Dan, for coming into the studio for the first time. I hope it's not the last. Me too. And um, we're going to, segue into the next uh, segment of shtetl which is about the first Jewish frosh in Montreal and I thought a good way to do that would be to play a little bit of peaches and just a warning there's a little bit of strong strong uh, words in this song but I also think it's a very spiritual message about you know taking life by the horns and it's a good way to talk about frosh so you know if you're at work with your shtetl like blasting you might want to turn it down this is peaches uh, and I can't even say the name of the song. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with Marley Wasser in just a minute. All right, we're back on Staddle on the Shortwave. That was the spiritual music of Meryl Nisker, aka Peaches. And I'm very excited to introduce you all to Marley Wasser. She's a journalist and a new producer for Staddle on the Shortwave. She's going to be doing lots of stories this year and research and helping make this show a lot tighter, a lot better, and a lot more fun. And Marley, Welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave.
5: Oh, thanks, Tamara. Hi, listeners. This is awesome. So excited to be here.
1: So the first story that you worked on was this first ever Jewish frosh in Montreal, right?
5: Right. Last Friday, I actually got to take part in some activities with the Ghetto Scholes Gefilte frosh, the first ever frosh in Montreal. Uh, so Gefilte frosh, I guess they thought was kind of a punny name because there is a fish frosh, a Christian frosh already, so maybe that's what they were going off of.
1: Okay, Gefilte frosh.
5: Yeah, so it was great because I'm actually pretty new to the city myself. I've only been here about a year, so it was nice getting the chance of a little bit of an orientation, and part of the activities I got to take part in was a walking tour.
1: Okay, so you had the chance to learn about some of Montreal's hot Jewish cultural spots?
5: Well yeah, from the 19th and 20th centuries. So It was actually a historical walking tour of Old Jewish Montreal being led by Zev Moses, who is the founder and curator of the Interactive Museum of Jewish Montreal. The first stop on the tour was actually only a spot that became part of uh, montreal's jewish history this past spring
1: what where where did you guys stop
5: it was the former home of the ghetto shul on park avenue
1: okay okay didn't they close last year isn't
5: some- for any listeners who aren't familiar with the ghetto shul it's a student-run synagogue that mainly caters to the part of montreal we fondly call the mcgill ghetto and rabbi labish Hundert was the shul's spiritual leader for almost its entire 11-year history and when he and his wife dina left the storefront synagogue this past uh, spring the park avenue Synagogue shut its doors, but some of the Ghetto Shul's members still wanted to carry it on, and fortunately they caught a break. The Bag Shul, uh, sorry, Bag Street Shul, which
1: is a very cool shul. If anybody's ever been inside, it's beautiful, yeah, really awesome venue.
5: The longest-running shul in Montreal's history, continuous running, and they invited the Ghetto Shul to bring their Friday night service to them, which was great. So they've been doing that, and I'll let you listen to Adam Weiner now. He was one of the Ghetto Shul's gefilte coordinators and i had a chance to speak with him on the walking tour a little about the gefilte and what's going on with the ghetto shul okay
6: cool so the ghetto shul basically we no longer have any paid full-time staff or rabbinic leadership we're continuing only as a student-run organization but we're back and better than ever. We're expecting hundred people for our first Shabbat this week, and a similar turnout each Shabbat. We're having Shabbat services, programming through the week, a Beit Midrash like Jewish study night, things like that, and to like show everybody that Ghetto Shul really is back and really is you know here for Jewish students. We plan this Gefilte frosh event. There are 5 of us that have been working on it all summer and like we've had an amazing showing from the community in terms of volunteers and stuff. And for me personally, I think that it's a really awesome thing to have a lot of different alternatives to get people attuned to life here in Montreal. I know that, you know, I'm in my 4th year here, but when I just started, I would have loved these like crazy alternative Jews to take us around the city and go on walking tours to discover a little bit about the context of where we're living, to check out concerts like we had an amazing time the Gen J and the Montreal Jewish Music Festival like sponsored us to come to a Yemen blues concert last night which was amazing we got on our feet and danced a little bit so you know right now I I feel like I'm having a blast I'm doing all the things I would have loved to do you know I still love to do them but would have loved to do as a young first year just starting out here at McGill
1: Wow, that's awesome uh, that they got to go to Yemen Blues as part of their frosh. That was such an amazing concert at the Rialto. That's so much fun.
5: Yeah, I was there too. I loved it. It was great. They
1: were really good. So do did a lot of first-year students sign up for this this frosh event?
5: Yeah, it was a pretty good turnout. There were about 10 people on the walking tour I went on, um, but they weren't all first-year students. As you heard Adam say, some of the returning students were really happy this was going on, so they tagged along as well. But there was a good number of first-years, uh, some from Montreal, but there were quite a few. I got the sense it was mostly tracking attracting new students to the city, so here's what Esther, one of the first-year McGill students from New Jersey, had to say about why she signed up for Gefilte Frosch. I knew coming in, like, I had to find the Jewish community, like, that's so important to me, and on top of that, the Arts Frosch and the others, they didn't appeal to me. There's too much drinking and, like, partying, and this I knew would be, like, small right away, and, like, automatically you wanted the community focus, so I'm really glad I found this.
1: I don't know. It's crazy. She's saying she doesn't like to party yet. Like she was on that Peaches track. I am pretty sure I heard (laughs) hers.
5: I don't give up.
1: (laughs) <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's good that there was an alternative. That's great. Yeah,
5: and I mean, there was some partying. They had the Yemen blues concert. But she, yeah, I think I think she was one of the students carrying around one of those little cups that all the frosh have to carry around. And when you're underage and you can't actually fill the cup, it's a little annoying. Okay. <laughs> so they like this alternative. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. so um, the the tour went down really well with everyone, the walking tour. And even the frosh coordinators, they were telling me along the way that they were really surprised that so many of these stops that uh, Zev Moses took them to that they pass on a regular basis in downtown Montreal actually have a lot of interesting stories behind them. So, you know, for instance, at the top of uh, Prince Arthur, before it hit St. Denis, there's that Carré-Saint-Louis, that little park there.
1: Yeah, where you get Le Fleur's. And, yeah. yeah. Well, there
5: used to be, apparently in the early 20th century, an English Protestant school in that area where a lot of Jewish students went who had parents in the garment or shmata industry at the time that was, you know, there's a lot of striking and interesting stuff went down there. So I'll let you hear from Zev Moses. He explains what happened there in
7: There's a teacher in the uh, grade 6 class. She makes a disparaging remark to the kids. She told her pupils that the school was increasingly dirty because of the growing number of Jewish students. So, five students that day walked out and brought 200 other students with them, basically most of the school, and they went on strike in this park. This is in the middle of the winter, too. It was in February 1913. They had a strike in the park. They were super organized because, again, they're learning from their parents who are all like in unions. So there's no scabs allowed. Everyone's put into different ranks and things like that. They send a committee over to, to the organization called the Baron de Hirsch, which existed before the Federation, to get some negotiators for them. And also, they go up to the Yiddish newspaper and to like publicize their strike. And here it is, uh, the kids' demands are on this thing. They make it into all of the newspapers in the city. Although they're kind of make, they're made fun of a little bit by. They they're as young as six and as old as twelve.
1: And they organized a strike.
7: They organized like a two-day strike, yeah. And they ended up being able to negotiate. I mean, they couldn't do it directly because they were like six, but um, <laughs> but like they negotiated so to get the teacher to leave the school eventually. And in reaction, the Protestant school board, which was facing pressure from a lot of Jews decided to start hiring some Jewish teachers, although the improvements really didn't come for decades. But this was kind of the first win for Jews uh, within that school system, and it began with little kids. We kitties, as it says in the newspaper. Okay, we're going to keep going, but you can ask me questions as we walk along.
1: Awesome. Oh my God, so the the student strikes right now have a a precedence in 1913 with six-year-old Jewish kids.
5: Yeah, I guess the red squares could have learned something from how to negotiate. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, well, for anyone who's interested, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been on one of Zev Moses' historical walks before. I haven't. I've never been on one of the walks. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. So there's going to be one, I think, on October 14th, the Day of Le which is a a festival in Montreal of Jewish arts, culture, and learning. And so we'll have to get out uh, some more details on that to put up on our event section of the website. And I'm sure they'll be um, promoting it as well on the interactive museum of jewish montreal website so anyways back to gefilte Frosch. one really interesting fact um actually i don't know if you know that big park where the the montreal where the mountain is um that actually used to be called fletcher's field around there and it was a really hot jewish hangout where jews used to go and pick each other up and families would go it's just funny to hear there's so many normal spots where historical Jewish spots. Anyways, at the end of the tour we were greeted by a surprise Klezmer concert.
1: Okay, who are the musicians?
5: That's what you're listening to right now. It's actually a drop-in Klezmer jam band. Um, They meet every Monday from 6 to 8. It's very informal. All different levels are welcome. So they're pretty good. Um, I don't really play Klezmer music myself, but for anyone who is interested and plays an instrument and wants to try it out, you can get more info about that from the Gefilte Frosch coordinators. Uh, They have an email address, which Mm is gefiltefrosch at gmail.com. how do you
1: spell that? Gefilta?
5: Gefilta. Gefilte? Gefilte. G-E-F-I-L-T-E. Gefilte.
1: Gifilta frosh. Nice, 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 nice. Awesome, Marley. Thank you so much for reporting on this first episode ever Jewish frosh in Montreal.
5: Whoa, thanks. It's been awesome.
1: That pretty much takes us to the end of the show. And it was a great show today. A lot of fun. First of all, I want to thank all the people that participated, including Matthew Hess of Foreskin Man for taking the time to talk with me, Martin Schubert of the Judacy uh, blog in Germany, Dan Seligman of Pop Montreal. Of course, thank you so much to Marley Wasser for all her work in producing the show and in getting that great tape and to Lainey Bassman for her awesome some research skills uh, when it came to the circumcision question we had a lot of great discussions around that and I hope you'll tune in in a couple of weeks to the next episode of Staddle on the shortwave and if you want to listen to this show or other episodes of Staddle you can go to StaddleMontreal.com or iTunes and I thought it would be fun to just go out with a little bit more from the German band Judici. so thanks for tuning in
0: I'm in going